We are in Luke chapter 19 today, and that's page 878 in the Bible in front of you. And we're actually going to just jump right into the passage today. This first part is the story of Zacchaeus, which should be pretty well known to most of you. And so we're going to talk about Zacchaeus really isn't the focus of this sermon, though. We're going to spend more time on the parable that immediately follows it. But there's some important things that we learn from Zacchaeus that will help us to understand that parable better. So Luke chapter 19, I'm going to start in verse 1. Why don't we stand together as we read God's word? He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was a wee little man. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come into this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You guys can have a seat. Like I mentioned, this isn't going to be our main focus, and yet there's a couple things that we learn about Zacchaeus that are really important and help us understand the next parable. Who is Zacchaeus? I want to actually compare him to someone that we met in the last chapter. In in Luke chapter 18, we met the rich young ruler. And so if if we kind of compare these two guys, the rich young ruler with Zacchaeus, we find that they have something in common. They're both filthy rich. They're wealthy. They have a lot of money. And yet, after that, we find there's a lot of differences between them. And actually, if you were to, if you were to take them and, and hold them up and kind of look at them, we would tend to see the rich young ruler as the better guy. He's the one that's more likely to follow Jesus, more likely to serve God. Because, I mean, he's following the commandments. He seems like an upstanding citizen. People seem to like him. All of that looks really good. And then you look at Zacchaeus, and he's a chief tax collector, And they did not have a good reputation. People didn't like them. They had joined the enemy, right? They were working for the Romans, this oppressive government. They often were taking advantage of people by taking more than they had to of their money to to build their own wealth. And so people looked at tax collectors and they saw them as sinners. They saw them as mean. They did not like them. And so when you look at it on the surface, the rich young ruler looks much more likely to be the one to follow Jesus. And yet, what actually happens throughout the story? There's one little detail that when you understand that, it changes everything in your perspective on both both of them. Do you remember what the rich young ruler called Jesus? When he came to him, what did he call him? He called him good teacher. Now, Dustin talked about this last week, and we kind of already went through the whole good thing. But even just that idea of teacher. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Jesus was a teacher. That's great. Call him teacher. That's fine. But is he only a teacher? Is he merely a teacher? What does Zacchaeus refer to Jesus as? What does Zacchaeus call Jesus when he finally speaks to him? He says, behold, Lord. He calls him Lord. Now, one of the problems we have is oftentimes with that word Lord, we don't really pay much attention to it. 
We often kind of think of that as just one, you know, part of Jesus' name. He's the Lord Jesus Christ or the Lord God. We don't think of it as actually being a title. But even when we think of it as a title, I know for me personally, I have oftentimes misunderstood that, mis, you know, not really gotten to the heart of it. What do we think of outside of the Bible when we think of lords? We think of, I don't know, lords and ladies, a landowner in England. That doesn't describe Jesus very well. And yet, the implication of the word Lord here is a servant and master relationship. By calling him Lord, he's calling him master. And so we see Zacchaeus, right from the get-go, not just calling him teacher, but actually by calling him master, we see something different about Zacchaeus. And we also see then their action from that. The rich young ruler is unwilling to give his money away in order to follow Jesus. He wants to keep it for himself. He's going to be Lord of his own life, master of himself. Whereas Zacchaeus, Jesus doesn't ask him to do anything besides have him come over to his house. And his initial reaction is, I'm going to give half of my money away and I'm going to, I'm going to restore to these people that I've sinned against, that I've taken advantage of. I'm going to restore to them fourfold. His initial reaction is to give his resources, his money away. And we see how Jesus responds to each of them. To the rich young ruler, Jesus says, how difficult is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And yet, to this rich chief tax collector, he says, Today, salvation has come to this house, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus, first of all, he understood who Jesus really was. He called him Lord. He knew that he was the master and that he was the servant. Zacchaeus also knew something about himself. He knew that he was a sinner in need of a Savior, and that was something that the rich young ruler was missing. He didn't know that he had a problem. But Zacchaeus recognizes that. He recognizes that he's a sinner. And so on that day, he went from being a sinner to being a servant. From sinner to servant. And that leads us right next into this, this next parable. So I'm going to read verses 11 through 27. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received his kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they, what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your manah has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your manah has made five minas. And he said to him, And you will be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your manah, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man, you take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the minah from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten. I tell you, 
that to everyone who has more, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Let's go back to the beginning of this parable. An important question here is why is he telling this parable at this particular time and place? And actually, Luke gives us some indication as, as to why. And there's two sides of it. Initially, first of all, it connects to the story of Zacchaeus. It says, as they heard these things. So right after this interaction with Zacchaeus, he goes on to tell this parable because it relates to what's going on with Zacchaeus. But the other side of it, he says that he was coming near to Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So Jesus has been on this journey to Jerusalem, actually through most of the chapter, through most of the book of Luke, the second half, he's been going to Jerusalem. And they have this expectation of Jesus that when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to set up the kingdom. He's going to be the new king, overthrow the Romans, and, and set up the kingdom of God. And yet that's not his plan, is it? And so he is giving them this parable to help them understand what the plan really is. That that's not the plan. This is what the plan really is. And we actually see it. The triumphal entry is the next the very next story, where they very much welcome him into Jerusalem as the next king. But that's not the way it's going to work. So this is the parable. It starts off with the nobleman who goes to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now, we often misunderstand this. We often think that he is going away to get a different kingdom. Like, okay, here he is in this place, and he's going to go away to receive a different kingdom that he's inherited. But that's not what's happening. He's going away to get permission to rule over this kingdom. And people actually would have had some context for this. When Herod the Great died, about 30 years before this, his son Archelaus actually had to travel all the way to Rome to get permission from Emperor Augustus to become the king of Judah. So he had to go away to get permission to be the ruler of Judah. So they would have kind of understood what, was, what he was talking about here. Before the nobleman leaves to go get his kingdom, though, he leaves some of his servants in charge. He calls ten of them to himself, and he gives each of them a minah, which is about three months' worth of wage. You could think it's like ten dollars to $15,000 in our day. So he's, he gives them some resources, and he says, engage in business until I come back. Basically, keep doing my work, keep doing my business, maintain things, keep my affairs in order until I come back. And then he leaves, and when he leaves, we're introduced to a third group of people, and these are the citizens. These are just everyone else that's living in the country, and apparently they don't want him to be king. They don't want him to rule over them. This actually is, is also familiar to that story I mentioned earlier. When Archelaus left to go to Rome, there was a group of Jews that didn't want him to be king, and so they left, sent a delegation after him to go complain to the emperor that they didn't want him to be king. And it kind of half worked. He still became the ruler, but he got stripped of the title king and just became an ethnarch, a, a ruler over a group of people. So once again, they would have understood this connection here. <clears throat> There's three groups of people. There is the noblemen, then there are the servants, and then there are the citizens. We've got to keep those in our minds as we're reading this. Now we get to, he's gone, we don't know how much time has gone past, but now we have the return of the king. The nobleman comes back, and he is now king because he's received his kingdom. And the first thing that he does is he calls those ten servants to himself to see how they've done with his business while he's been gone. So we get the first one. 
The first one says, Lord, your minah has made ten minahs more. He's got a thousand percent increase. That's amazing. He turned that one into ten. And the master recognizes it. He says, good job, faithful servant. Now, I'm going to make you, I'm going to give you authority over ten cities. He rewards this servant for being responsible with his resources. He rewards him by now giving him authority over ten of the cities in his country. We have something very similar with the next one. He has had 500% growth. He's got five minas now. And he says, you're going to be, you're going to have authority over five cities. It's all looking good. Until we get to the third servant. And the third servant comes and he says, here's your mina back. Here's your one mina back. I put it off to the side. I securely covered it up with a handkerchief because we all know that's a great way to secure $15,000. And he didn't do anything with it. He didn't engage in his master's business. He did not serve his master while the master was gone. But he gives a reason. Here's why I didn't do it. Number one, I was afraid of you. And I was afraid of you because I think that you are a severe man. And so, and, and what he says next doesn't seem to really fit with that first part. I'm afraid of you, you're severe. But then he goes on to explain that basically, I didn't feel like it was fair that you make me work hard so that you can become rich. That's what he feels like is going on here. Here, make me money while I'm gone so that I can, I can have more of it when I come back. That's the way the servant is feeling about the master, which is sometimes how employees feel about the CEO, right? I'm doing all this hard work to make you a bunch of money. That's how he's feeling. <clears throat> Why do I have to do all of this work to make you a bunch of money? The master doesn't really believe him, at least not the first part. He says, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. If you really thought that I was a severe man, if you really were actually afraid of me, you would have at least put my money in the bank where it could have made some interest when I came back. But that's not what he did. And I think this really gets to the heart of what's actually going on with the servant. The servant had no interest in actually living up to his name. He was a, he was a servant in name, right? He even calls the master Lord, but he doesn't live like it. He takes what the master has given, the jobs, the duties, the responsibilities he's given him, and he hides it in a handkerchief and puts it off to the side, and then he turns and he lives life the way that he wants to live it. He's really his own master. I'm going to live for myself to do what I want to do rather than serving you. That's really what's going on with this wicked servant here. And this actually brings up a good question for us. What, do, what are we talking about when we're talking about a servant? The ESV translates the Greek word doulos here as servant, and it's not a bad translation, but there are certain cultural connotations that we have with that word. <clears throat> and a lot of them revolve around, we think of, what do we think of when we think of a servant? We think of someone, we think of paid help in your house, someone that's paid to come in and to serve you in your house. And we don't really call these people servants today, but you might think of like a housekeeper or a butler maybe. You, you guys have butlers, right? That's a normal thing. No. <laughs> But you go back a couple hundred years, and, and like we think of servant like that, someone who's paid to help out around the house, but at any time they could quit their job and leave and go away. And that doesn't quite get to the heart of what this word is actually about. So some of your translations might use the word slave instead, but that's got its own cultural baggage, doesn't it? We often think of slavery as being very ethnic-focused, a certain people group based on their color of skin or their, their culture, and, and we're going to enslave those people. 
we think of it as being very harsh conditions, very mean masters, not treating them well. And we also think of it as a lifetime sentence. You will be a slave forever, and your kids will be after you. It's generational. And so that word also doesn't really fit with what's going on here. So another way to translate it, some of your translations might have the word bondservant. And actually, in ESV, there's a footnote there that points you down to the word bondservant. And that actually probably works the best. Because think about that idea of a servant, but they're bound to their master. They can't just quit, get up, and leave at any time. They are bound to their master. I mentioned that definition to the kids earlier. Um, According to a Bible dictionary, this word here means a person totally responsible to and dependent upon another person. What we see is that the servant has a claim on the master, the same as the master has a claim on the servant. Now, servants didn't have rights back then, but oftentimes slaves were actually better off than many of the free people. What would happen is that you're a free person and you're getting into trouble. Uh, Maybe your farm is not producing crops. You can't sell them. You can't make any money. You don't even have food to put on the table. Maybe you have a bunch of debt racked up, so you're supposed to go to debtor's prison, or you're just going to starve to death. And so you decide your option is to go and sell yourself into slavery. So you go to someone and say, basically, can I be your slave? Can I work for you? And you will provide for my everyday needs. You'll provide room and board, basically, food, shelter, and I will serve you. And so it was, it, was, it was voluntary. I'm going to go and I'm going to become a servant of you. <clears throat> uh, and under biblical law, every seven years, all the slaves would be freed and all the debts would be erased. And so the maximum time you would have of serving someone would be seven years and you'd be brought back to zero and you'd get another chance. It's not a lifelong sentence. However, there is a provision in the law where you could become a servant of somebody for your whole life. If you really liked your master... If you just wanted to serve, it was a joy to serve them, you wanted to serve them the rest of your life, you could choose to do that. And then you'd actually get a a pierced ear, put an earring in your ear to show that you are dedicated to that person for the rest of your life. And as we talk about this, I was trying to figure out what is, what's something, you know, we're kind of so far removed from this. How can we understand this in today's world? And so I thought of that parent and child relationship that I talked about with the kids earlier. And, and we're, we're probably hesitant to call our kids slaves, and that's probably a good thing. But when I look at that definition as someone that's totally responsible to and totally dependent upon another person, that really does fit with kids. I have a responsibility for my kids to provide food for them, to provide shelter for them. Not only that, but from God's word, I have a responsibility to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And so I have a responsibility to take care of my kids, and they also have an obligation to me. God's word says, children, obey your parents in in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. You know, and and hopefully I'm being a good dad and I'm not not, um, exasperating them, but they should be listening and obeying to what I have said. And it made me think of a situation that we had. One One of the big difficulties in raising kids is getting them to pick up their toys. And I know that it's, you know, it's it's a big deal. It's it's pretty harsh that they would get all of these toys out, toys out and we would have the audacity to ask them to pick them up themselves and put them away. I mean, that's just, we're slave drivers here, right? But that's the way it feels to kids. And so we were having a situation where it just was like, we are constantly harping on them, just nagging them, like, pick up your toys, pick up your toys, pick up your toys. And it got really old. Like, we're, this isn't helping anybody here. So Jill and I came up with a plan. We had an idea. We want to teach them responsibility for their possessions. That's a good idea, right? 
So what we're going to do is every day we're going to have one time during the day where they pick up their toys. Right before dinner, they need to clean up the whole house, put all of their toys away. And if they don't, we've got to have consequences, right? Or we're just going to end up nagging them again. So if they don't, any toys that are left when we start dinner, I'm going to go around with a trash bag, and I'm going to put those in the trash bag. And then I'm going to put it out in the garage. Now, I don't throw it away right away, okay? I have some grace and some mercy on them. They have three days. If the following day they pick up all their toys, then they get the bag back. If they don't, then another bag goes out there. And, and after three days they have not redeemed their toys, we take it to Goodwill. So that was the deal we made with them. We thought it was pretty, pretty great, and they did not. They did not like that idea. <laughs> the funny thing was, though, is it wasn't hard. And, like, the first couple days, like, it really, like, we, you know, we reminded them, and it was not difficult for them to do it. But after a couple days of doing this, um, I sit down for dinner, and Jill turns to me and says, uh, Ryan, Henry wants to talk to you. That's kind of weird. Uh, so Henry is our second born. He's seven years old. And so I turn to him, and he looks at me with just a very solemn look on his face, and he says, Dad, I feel like you're using fear to try to get us to obey. <laughs> like, who are you? Like, where did you come up with this idea? Like, number one, you are exactly right. I am trying to use fear. And to be honest, we were trying to do the whole love thing, and that wasn't working, so we had to turn to fear. <laughs> and, yeah, just, uh, but he, so he did, he did see it. But one of the things I realized in this, I want to be careful because I don't want you to think too much of Henry being the wicked servant in the story here. <laughs> but the problem is, the problem is the view of the master. And if Henry, and, and this is a problem with kids, if they really understood what we were trying to do, they would probably obey a lot easier. Like, I'm not doing this to be mean. I'm not doing this just because I want a clean house. I'm trying to teach them responsibility for their possessions so that later on they will take good care of their stuff. And yet, it's hard for them to see that. But if he really knew who I was and what I was trying to do, he'd have a different response. And, you know, the wicked servant here, he just doesn't get his master. This whole idea of, of trying to make money off of me, if you actually look back, what does he do with the ten minas and with the five minas that those other guys made? He doesn't take it away from them. He seems to let them keep it. All that money that they earned, they actually get to keep. And then he gives them more authority and responsibility as a reward for the responsibility that they've shown with what he's given them. But that third servant, he doesn't get it. He doesn't see who his master really is. So we get to verse... um, Verse 24, and we see what happens next, is he takes the one from the, from, the, from the wicked servant and he gives it to the one who has ten. And there's some people that are unhappy about this. Right? They think that he should have been a little more equitable, maybe given it to somebody else that, that had less money, maybe, maybe distributed it evenly to everybody. They don't feel like it's fair. And then we have an interesting thing here. The response is this. Verse 26. To everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. That's a strange phrase. Especially because it's coming from Jesus. If you haven't figured it out already, and we'll talk about it more in a second, the the nobleman, the king, the master in this story is Jesus. And this doesn't seem like something Jesus would say. Usually Jesus is all about giving to the poor and caring for the weak, all of those kinds of things. And yet here he seems to be saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. 
Is that true, though? You see, it's not about the money. This parable is not about the money. What the master's doing is he's testing his servants. He's testing to see if they're responsible, if they're faithful servants with what he's given them. He's not handing out paychecks. He's asking them, are you really truly a servant? Are you really faithful to me? And to the ones that are faithful, he rewards with more responsibility. More, he doesn't give them a, a vacation. He gives them more authority, more responsibility. And I think that if he was to have mercy on the wicked servant, I mean, imagine him going, you know, you missed it. You didn't do the right thing. But, you know, I'm going to have some, some grace. I'm going to have some mercy on you. And I'm still going to give you authority over one city. How well would that servant have led, have ruled that city? I don't think he would have done a very good job because he was living for himself. What he proved while the master was gone was that he only cared about living for himself. And so when he rules that one city, it's going to be all about what he can get. Poor servants make poor masters. So that leads us finally now to the citizens. The citizens' reward, they did not want him to become king. They did not want to serve him, did not want him to be under his authority. And so they kind of get what they want, um, and they are killed. They are destroyed before him. And this is a very dark end to the parable. And yet, from what we've seen in Luke recently, it, it, it does actually fit with themes that we've seen recently. And the expectation that when Jesus does come back, there will be judgment. There will be justice. And that's a good thing. I want to remind you, this is a parable. So it's not a literal story, but it has meaning. And when we look at that meaning, that's when we really find what this means for us. That's when we really find the application out of it. <clears throat> and so starting off, we look at who, who does each people group represent. Well, I already mentioned it, but the nobleman, the king that comes back, the master, that is Jesus. And we already talked that he's telling this story because there's an expectation that he's going to bring the kingdom in right now. He's going to become king right now. And yet he's saying, nope, not yet. That's not the plan. In fact, Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins. He's going to raise again, defeating death, and then he's going to ascend into heaven. And now he's gone away to the far country waiting to get permission to come back and to establish his, his millennial rule on this earth, to establish his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. So who are the servants? They're the people that serve him during that time while he's gone, that take his resources, his responsibilities, that take his mission, and they, they live it out. They do the work of Christ while he is gone from the earth. And so who are the, who are the servants? That's us. We are the followers of Jesus. We are the servants of Christ who now are in that in-between time. We're waiting for the king to come back to establish his kingdom. But while we wait, we're doing his work. We're taking the resources and the gifts and the responsibilities that he has given us, and we're, we're doing them. We're acting as his servants. And then we have the citizens, and that's just the rest of the people in the world that reject the salvation and the authority of Jesus, that want nothing to do with him. And so we know what happens with them when he comes back. This brings us to two questions. If we are those servants, we really have to figure out which kind of servant are we. Are we more like the first two or are we more like the third one? And we see Zacchaeus, he's the example that we see at the beginning. He is the faithful servant. 
the one who calls him Lord, and then gives away half his money immediately. Like, that's his first response, is you're the master of my life, so I'm just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give away my resources to others. I'm going to serve you with what you've given me, rather than serving myself. But what kind of servant are you? Unfortunately, the standard American Christian often looks like the wicked servant. This is the person who takes the name of Christ upon themselves, but has no intention of actually serving Jesus with their lives. It's this idea, I want you to think of that Minah as as receiving God's grace. This is the gift of God's grace, Jesus' death on the cross for our sins, the the message of the gospel. We receive his grace in our lives. And then I'm going to wrap that up in a handkerchief and I'm going to put it off to the side. You see, I don't want to get rid of it. This is just like the wicked servant. He doesn't spend it because he knows if he does, he'll get in big trouble, get sent to jail or be killed when the master comes back. He wants to at least be able to give it back to him. And that's just like some of us. We receive God's grace. I'm going to put it off to the side. That's my ticket to heaven. And so when Jesus comes back, I can show him that and I can go to heaven. And yet, for the rest of my life, I'm going to live over here as master of myself, doing what I want. I'm not living as a servant of Christ. I'm living as a servant of myself. I'm my own master. I am my own Lord. And I want to live for myself. And far too often, people that claim to be Christians will do just that. I want to receive the grace of God, but I want to live for myself. And yet, that shouldn't be the result the gospel has in our lives. If we really believe in all that Jesus has done for us, and we really see our master for who he is, we receive God's grace, and then we, we use it. We want it to work it out in our lives. We, we don't want to set it over to the side and forget about it. We actually want it to transform us, to become more like Christ. We want it to, to, to work in us so that we can be salt and light to the people around us. We want to work that out in our lives every day as servants of Christ. And we are called to be servants. But Jesus doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. Because we know that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is now our example. We serve him freely because of who he is and what he has done. And that's the whole point here. This isn't about um, serving Christ in order to earn our salvation or something like that. We have freely been given salvation in him. And because of that, because we see the wonderful, glorious beauty of our Savior, we have a desire to be his servants and to serve him with every part of our life. This is a common theme throughout the Bible, actually, the servant of the Lord, but especially in the New Testament. Several of the authors of the letters identify themselves at the beginning of the letter as Like, for instance, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul recognized that he was a servant of Christ Jesus. Romans 10, 9, which is a classic, like, salvation passage. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's that first part? Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. The implication is that he is the master and I am the servant. If I say that, if I confess that he is Lord, then that's what I'm saying. I'm here to serve you. You are the master. You are the Lord of my life. 1 Corinthians 6 says that we were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That everything we do, we are supposed to live as servants of Christ. And that reminds me of two chapters ago in Luke 17. We are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. And that's what I want to be able to say. That's the heart that I want to have for Christ, is to be able to say I'm an unworthy servant who has only done what was my duty. 
So the answer to that first question there, whom do you serve, certainly should be, we serve Christ Jesus. He is Lord. We are not. We are not Lord of our own life. We are not our own masters. We serve Christ. But that brings us to the second question. How do I serve? Because it's great to talk about that, and it sounds wonderful. I'm a servant of Christ, but what does it actually look like to live that way every day in our lives? The first thing to ask yourself is, what has God put in front of me? I want to make sure that's clear, because sometimes, if you've never thought about this idea before of, of Christ being Lord, being master, and us being servant, this could like, you could be like, wow, I really need to totally change my whole life around. And that might be true, but start with just asking yourself, God, what have you put in front of me? What resources, what responsibilities have you put in front of me that I can be faithful to you, that I can serve you by doing these things? And one of those ways is money. We actually saw that's what the servants are given in the passage. That's what Zacchaeus uses. The first thing he uses is his money to serve God. So how can we serve God with our money? Whether you have $100 or you have a million dollars, you can serve God with your money. You've heard that it was said, show me your budget and I can show you what your priorities are. It's true. Honestly, take a look at your budget. If you don't have a budget, you should. Being intentional with your money is a way that you can serve God. But, but honestly, look at it and ask, how do I glorify God with the way that I'm spending my money each month? I want to be clear. I'm not telling you to stop paying your mortgage to support a missionary instead or something like that. No, like one of the ways I can glorify God is by paying for my mortgage so I can have a house to live in for me and my family so I can invite other people over. That's a wonderful way to glorify God. But just to have that perspective, not this is my money, I'm going to spend it the way I want, but God has given me money to steward for him. How can I glorify him with the way that I spend my money? I want to give some just very practical examples. So, for instance, um, maybe you're thinking about buying a new car. Maybe your car's getting old, you've had it a few years now, you want to buy a brand new car. What if instead of spending all that money on a brand new car, you either just held on to the car you had for a few years, or, or if you really did need a new car, you, you got a used car instead. And you just took some of that money that you were going to spend on a new car, and instead maybe you helped somebody that needs to fix their car. Their car's broken down, they can't drive, or it's on its last leg, and maybe, they, maybe you could use that money to serve someone else, to serve God in somebody else's life by helping them out with their car. Or maybe you could use some of that money and you could support a missionary. We're going to talk about one of our missionaries later on in the service. But how could I use some of my money to support a missionary or a ministry that is glorifying to God rather than just spending it on myself? Maybe bring it down a little bit. Maybe you're not thinking about buying a new car. What about coffee? Maybe you go and you, you get some Starbucks from Fairway a few times a week. What if just once a week you took one of those cups of coffee that you bought and you made coffee at home for a few cents instead and you took that five to seven dollars and you gave it to something outside of yourself? Maybe you gave it to the building project here. And I, and I hate talking about that because it sounds self-serving, but I promise you the new building's not for me. God has been working here and we've seen how he's faithfully provided so much more than we ever could have expected and yet he wants to use us. And I think sometimes people feel like, well, it's only really worth giving to the building project if I can give thousands of dollars to it. But it's not true. We can all be a part of it, even if it's $5 instead of a cup of coffee. We can give to something outside of ourselves. And that's the whole idea here. How can I spend my money 
serving God rather than serving myself. Another resource that we have is time. Show me your calendar and I can show you what your priorities are. How do we spend our time? Think about maybe vacation. Maybe you like taking a vacation sometimes. What if instead of, you know, a week of vacation that you were going to spend this year, what if you went on a mission trip instead? And you still get to go somewhere, but it looks a little bit different. Rather than focused on serving myself and relaxing, I can actually serve others. I can serve God through that. And take your whole family with them. You really want fruit. You really want something good out of, out of that week. A mission trip is going to bring you a lot more fruit in your life than a vacation will. Or maybe you can go serve at camp. Especially you teenagers out there, take a week off of work this summer if you're working and go serve at a camp, whether it's Dunes Bible Camp, whether it's Tadmore. Take a week and serve God at camp. This also applies to adults too, though. A lot of those camps need some adult help as well. And uh, I know that the Stouts, the last two summers, have taken time out of their schedule. Last year, it was a whole month they took to go and serve at Dunes Bible Camp when they could have been doing a lot of other things, but they served God with their time. Maybe a smaller example. At night, you turn on the TV, watch TV. I know Jill and I, finally, we get the kids to bed at night after they've accused us of all these, you know, using fear to control them. (coughs) And we turn on the TV and we watch a couple shows. What if just a few times during the week, you just took one of those shows that you would watch, you turned off the TV, and for 20 minutes, you read your Bible, or you prayed. Or you, maybe you just called someone, a friend or a family member that you could encourage, that you can connect with. But it's once again, how can I use my, my time, the time that God has given me, how can I use it to serve him rather than serving myself? myself? And a big part of all of this is it's a perspective shift. A servant of Christ is intentional with their time and their resources to serve Christ rather than themselves. Part of that relates to the church as well. A lot of people, when they're checking out a church, they're church shopping, they're looking for a church, what are the questions they're thinking as they show up to that church? They're asking, what can I get out of this church? Does this church meet my needs? Do I like the sermon? Do I like the worship music? Does it have programs and activities that will serve my family? And I get it. I understand, right? That makes sense to to have those thoughts when you're coming into a church. That doesn't make it right. Instead, the question we should be asking when we walk into the church is, how can I serve God here? What What if that was all of our perspective when we walked in this morning? Was how can I worship? How can I serve God in this church? That would change things, wouldn't it? We're here to serve Jesus, to worship him, not to consume content and feel better about ourselves. The big picture here is a perspective shift, to see ourselves as a servant, to look at what God has given us in our lives and to ask that question, how can I serve Christ with all of my life rather than serving myself? I was thinking about this in my own life and I was thinking about two big things that God has given me. He's given me a family He's given me four wonderful kids and a beautiful wife. He's also given me a job as a pastor at this church. And it would be very easy for me to see that job as a pastor of this church as the main way that I serve Christ. 
and I could say, yeah, I'm a pastor here, and so, and, and some of you guys are jealous because I get paid to serve Jesus, and so, like, I, I need to put all of my time and my, and my energy into serving Jesus as a pastor at this church, and many pastors do that, and they end up neglecting their family, and it's easy to justify, though, right? Like, ah, you guys will be okay. Like, I need to serve Jesus. I'm doing this for the Lord, and yet, you see how a lot of those pastor's kids end up turning out. My primary, one of the primary jobs my, God has given me is a responsibility for my family. And before I ever disciple anyone in the church, I should be discipling my kids to raise them up as followers of Jesus. And so what I'm trying to say here is it's not that you abandon everything else in your life to only to be at the church seven days a week doing things. That's not the point. What I'm saying is to have that perspective, to take a step back and ask, God, how can I serve you with my whole life? If you're going to do that, though, there's two things that you need to believe in order to be able to do this. We can't help to do this on our own. There's two things you need to believe in order to really, truly be a servant of Christ. Number one, you have to believe that Jesus is the master. Our default is I'm the master. I mean, that's the way that we live in our country today, right? I'm in charge of my own life. I'm responsible for myself, and I'm going to do whatever's best for me. What I'm saying here, though, is if you're actually going to serve Christ, you need to believe that Jesus truly is the master, that Jesus is Lord. And the other thing that you need to believe is that he's coming back soon. I mean, let's be honest, that's the one I struggle with. It's been 2,000 years. I'm like, is he ever really coming back? And when I think that way, I tend to go, yeah, it doesn't really matter what I do then. He's not coming back anytime soon. And yet we see the parable of that in Scripture, don't we? of those servants who had no expectation, they weren't looking out for him, and so they get drunk and they leave the door locked and the master comes home in the middle of the night and he can't get in his own house because the servants weren't expecting him. Do I really believe that Jesus has promised that it's true what he has promised, that he is coming back again, that he is coming back soon? It's only then that I will live as his servant. If you are a servant of Christ, and you believe that Jesus is the master, then we need to live every day as though Jesus is coming back today. And I promise you, if you do that, if you have those two things in your mind, that'll radically change your life. And you will truly live, not for yourself, but for God, as a servant of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, we ultimately know that this is not some sort of work that we do to earn anything. Um, this is a response to your glory, a response to your goodness, to all that you've done for us. And so I pray for all of us in here that we would know you more. We would see you, our master, for who you truly are and the love that you have for us and the care that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that we would then live our lives as servants of you. That we would stop trying to live for ourselves, only doing what's good for us, we would instead look at our lives as a service to you and that everything that we do is meant to glorify you. God, I pray that you would help us to understand that better and really see what that means for our life and what that should do in our lives. With that, Lord, we give you all glory. And we ask this all in the praise of our glorious Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Amen.